Well, my name is Blake Jennings. Some of you haven't met me yet because you're new here to Grace. I'm the teaching pastor. I'm usually over at Southwood, though. It's great to be with you this morning. Before we jump into our sermon in Proverbs this morning, I did want to speak to you parents about next week's sermon, just so you're prepared ahead of time. We're going to be talking about sexual sin and pornography next week. It will not be graphic, but it will be blunt. All the things that we cover are things that you should be talking about with your kids once they reach about fourth grade because the the age of exposure to pornography is going down, 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 down. So you need to have those conversations by fourth grade. But if you're not ready to have that conversation with them next week, then I would encourage you to have your kids in Sunday school for next Sunday's sermon. So this week, we're not going to be looking at something quite as uncomfortable as sexual sin, but we are going to be looking at something every bit as convicting. We're going to be talking about contentment today. Now, some of you may have been around back in 1965. You may recall when a band called the Rolling Stones released their hit single, Can't Get No Satisfaction. It rocketed to the top of the Billboard 100 where it stayed for weeks. And 40 years later, the magazine Rolling Stones named this the second greatest song of all time. Incredibly popular. Now, why is this song so loved? Well, two reasons. First, because it starts with the greatest guitar lick ever. And I'm not going to hum it because it would stick in your head all morning and you wouldn't hear a thing that I have to say. There's a second reason, though. Why this song has proven so popular over four decades, and it's because the Stones tapped in to a universal sense of frustration that we all have experienced, a sense of angst over our inability to find lasting satisfaction in the things of this world. This is actually an angry song. If you listen to it carefully, it's a protest song. The Stones were angry because they could not find lasting satisfaction in in material goods or in sex or in anything that the, the world offered them. They could not find contentment that would last. Were the Stones right? Is lasting contentment really impossible to find in this life? Well, it all depends on how you define the word contentment. What do most people mean by contentment? Well, most people mean this, a feeling, a feeling of of happiness about life's circumstances. That's kind of the dictionary definition. If you look it up in, in Webster's dictionary, you'll see contentment defined as an emotional state of happiness and satisfaction. It's that feeling that you get inside when everything is going your way, that, that happiness that you feel when life is going well for you. It's actually how we got the word happiness. I don't know if you know where that word came from. It started back in the 12th century as a Norse word, hap. And hap meant good luck or prosperity. Came into English in the 14th century where happy actually meant lucky or prosperous with money. A a happy person was a person who had been lucky with money. The world has always associated happiness with prosperity. People assume that the way to find happiness and contentment and satisfaction in life is by accumulating prosperity or money. That's that's why most people in life, they set it as their goal to attain financial security. That, That bears out in survey after survey. 
as a life goal of most people. A recent survey of 2,000 British men and women, in that survey, they listed attained financial security as the number one determiner of contentment in their life. Bigger than anything else in relationships or health or anything like that. Number one on the list is attained financial security. That's what will make them content in life. Now, then you ask them, okay, well, how much money do you have to have? to be financially secure. Lots of surveys have been done on that and the answer is always the same. It's always twice, whatever you make now. It's really funny. Whatever a person makes right now, they assume if I only made twice of that amount, I would be happy. I would feel financially secure. And so people set it as their goal to make twice of whatever they're currently making. Unfortunately, the data does not support that conclusion that if I just had double the amount of money, I would finally be happy and content in life. Time magazine put it this way in a study back in April 2009. They said money does not buy happiness. Once you reach the median level of income, roughly $50,000 a year, wealth and contentment go their separate ways. And studies find that a millionaire is no more likely to be happy than someone earning one twentieth as much. That's actually proven true by going and talking to some millionaires. So you survey some of the richest people who have ever lived. Here's John D. Rockefeller, arguably by inflation adjustment, the richest man who's ever lived. He said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Or W.H. Vanderbilt, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Or Henry Ford, who built Ford Motor Company. I was happier when doing a mechanics job. These men have discovered a truth that we find throughout scripture. Money can't buy lasting happiness. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. Proverbs 27, 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor the eyes of man ever satisfied. Sheol and Abaddon are Hebrew words for death. So what Proverbs is saying is just as death is never satisfied, it takes more and more of us every day. So the eyes of men and women are never satisfied. There's no amount of possessions or money that they can accumulate that will ever satisfy their desire for more. There's actually not enough money in the entire world to satisfy the desires of our eyes. We'll always want more than what we have. Solomon himself sadly proved the truth of this proverb later in his life. You may know the story. Solomon, as he aged, he became foolish. And he gave in to greed and to lust. And he accumulated an incredible fortune. And he built ornate palaces all over the country. And and we look at Solomon's life and and all day long he feasted on on all of these exotic dishes. And he enjoyed all this wonderful entertainment. And he went to bed at night with 300 wives and 700 concubines. The guy had every pleasure that the world could possibly provide. And yet here is how he evaluated his life. In the midst of all of that pleasure, in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus, I considered all my activities which my hands had done. And behold... All was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. So I hated life for the work, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. So here is a man who enjoyed an unending succession of pleasure every single day and yet hated 
life. He could not hold on to happiness. It evaporated from his hands and left him a a cold, bitter, angry shell of a man. Solomon learned firsthand that if you are chasing after happiness, you are going to end up being disappointed in life. You cannot hold on to it. That's a lesson that I hope all of us learned when we were kids on the day after Christmas. Because what happens day after Christmas? Well, hopefully you've just received that present that you've wanted for months. You've been dreaming about it. Here's what I have been dreaming about. G.I. Joe F-14 fighter plane. I'd wanted this for for months when I was a little kid. I wanted it for a long time. It was really cool. The wings swept forwards and backwards. It had real missiles that it shot and a pilot you could put in. I thought it was incredible and awesome. made noises a whole whole nine yards. And so I took the Toys R Us catalog and I I dog-leafed the page and I made sure to leave it out so my parents would see it. And I went to bed every night dreaming about getting this toy because I was just convinced that my life would finally be complete if I could just get this. Then I wake up on Sunday morning and I run out in the living room and there it is. This beautiful toy still in its box and I couldn't even speak. I was just so consumed by rapture that I, I finally got it and I unwrapped it and I played with it. I was just overcome with happiness that lasted exactly 24 hours. Because then I woke up the next morning and I felt sad because my new toy wasn't new anymore. There was nothing new to discover, nothing new to to try out. I'd tried everything the day before and I woke up realizing it's now 364 days until the next Christmas. I felt incredibly disappointed and frustrated. That's what Solomon is talking about. That's what the Rolling Stones are singing about. That if you chase contentment by trying to find happiness in prosperity, in possessions, in pleasure, it will lead you down the path towards an empty and frustrating life. You will be chasing something that you can never hold on to. If you chase happiness, you're going to watch it like a vapor just evaporate from your hands. You can never hold on to it. You will end up living a life that is meaningless and frustrating and empty. I have seen so many lives and careers and marriages that have been destroyed because a person was chasing after a feeling that cannot last. If you're seeking contentment and a feeling of happiness, you will be disappointed in life. I guarantee it. But what if contentment is something more than a feeling? What if contentment is something deeper than just happiness? What if it's something more resilient to the changing circumstances of life? Well, that's the kind of contentment you find in the Bible. The Bible reveals a contentment that is different than the dictionary definition. In the Bible, contentment is not an emotional state. It is not a feeling of happiness. In the Bible, contentment is an attitude. Contentment in the Bible is an attitude of grateful acceptance of one's life. An attitude. What is an attitude? An attitude is a way that you think about life. Your attitude is how you see your life. Your attitude is how you choose to think about your life. And that word choose is really important because you don't get to choose emotions. Feelings are not something you choose. Emotions, you're just passive. They wash over you. Now, there's things that you can do that make a particular emotion more or less likely, but you don't get to choose an emotion or a feeling, but you do get to choose an attitude. 
You get to choose how you will see your life. You get to choose how you will interpret all of the experiences and circumstances that come into your life. You get to choose how you will think about those things. You get to choose whether you will see your life as a gift from God that you can be thankful for or as a curse that you are bitter and angry about. Biblical contentment is a choice that you get to make. A choice about whether you see your life as a gift from God that can be received with gratitude no matter what your circumstances are. That's the type of contentment, this attitude, this choice that we find in the most famous verse in the Bible on contentment in Philippians chapter 4. Paul tells us about biblical contentment. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You notice here for Paul, contentment is something you do. It's a choice you make. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, unfortunately, that verse right there at the end, that sentence at the end, is the most misquoted, misused verse in the whole Bible. Paul is not telling you that your football team can win. He's not telling you that you can walk in the gym and lift 300 pounds a day. It's not a blanket promise to do anything. It's defined by context. What is all things? You can choose to be content in any situation. So Paul's saying, whether Paul was hungry or full, whether he was poor or rich, whether he was in pain or in pleasure, he could choose to be content. It was his choice. He was not passive. What Paul is teaching us is that we are responsible for our own contentment in life. If I am not content today, that is my fault. Because contentment isn't about how I feel, it's about what I choose. The attitude that I choose, how I choose to see my life. I get to choose how I will interpret my experiences, whether seeing my life as a gift from God or not. We are responsible for our contentment. It's an attitude that we choose, a choice that we make. But, Paul is honest, it's a choice that's hard. It is difficult to choose day after day to be content with your life because contentment doesn't come easy for us. It's not our natural disposition. Babies are not born into the world content with life. It's not how we work from the womb on. We are naturally discontent. That's why Paul says contentment is something he had to Learn. He actually said that twice in the passage. It's actually really comforting to me. Here's the great apostle Paul, the saint apostle. And yet he had to learn how to be content. He had to work at contentment and cultivate it in his life and grow it in his life. It's something he had to develop. And that's what we're going to talk about for the remainder of this morning. How do you grow contentment in your life? How do you learn to be content? I'm going to walk you through Proverbs, and in the book of Proverbs, we're going to discover four principles or four practical steps that will help you to cultivate contentment in your life. 
Now, this is not by any means an exhaustive list. A whole lot of other passages on contentment in the Bible. There's a lot more that we could say. But this, this list of four practical steps, of four principles from the book of Proverbs will, will help you to get started down a path towards greater contentment. If you will practice these four things, you will become a more content individual. Okay, so let's look at these four principles. If you want to grow in contentment in your life, if you want to cultivate an attitude of contentment, principle number one, first thing you need to do is you need to learn to fear the Lord. Here's what Solomon says in Proverbs 19. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Now, when we look at that verse, all of us really want the second part of that, right? The second line sounds really good. So that one may sleep satisfied. Man, we want to go to bed at night. We want to put our head on our pillows and feel satisfaction and peace. We would love that because that's so hard. There's so few people in this world, especially adults, who lay down in their bed at night and feel satisfied and at peace. How do we usually feel when we go to bed? Well, we feel guilty or regretful for something we did in the past, or we feel stressed or anxious or afraid of something that's coming in the future, or we feel angry about something that somebody did to us today. We feel all of those things instead of peace and satisfaction, but Proverbs wants us to understand it doesn't have to be that way. You can go to bed at night and feel deep satisfaction in your soul. You can feel lasting peace as you fall asleep at night if, if you will learn to fear the Lord. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? That word fear is kind of tricky because in Hebrew, it's really broad. It can go all the way from terror, panic on this side to respect or reverence on this side. You've got to figure out from context, what does an author mean by this word in his book? So you study Proverbs, you look at what Solomon says in Proverbs, and I think you'll conclude that there's two things that Solomon has in mind when he tells us to fear the Lord. First thing that Solomon means by fearing the Lord is you've got to believe in the Lord. That kind of goes without saying. You cannot fear a God you don't believe in. So you got to believe that God exists, but not just any God, this God, the God of the Bible, that he is creator, that he exists, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. You got to believe that this God exists. But you might wonder, how does belief that this God, the God of the Bible exists, how is this going to help you feel peace and satisfaction when you lay your head on your pillow at night? Well, because this God is not like other gods. You see, other gods make you earn their love and their approval. So Islam, Allah, he, he makes you to follow the five pillars every day. You gotta do the practices, the five things that Muslims do to be acceptable and loved in his sight. But that's not how this God operates. This God offers his love and his acceptance as an absolutely free gift. This God actually earned eternal life and forgiveness for you by coming to earth in the flesh. Jesus Christ, he took on human flesh, he lived among us, and then he took all of our sins upon himself and died in our place and then rose from the dead so that God the Father can offer to all of us in this room forgiveness and eternal life as an absolutely free gift. Nothing you gotta do to earn it, just need to believe. Just say to God, yes, I want that gift of eternal life. I want to be forgiven. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead so that I could have forgiveness in heaven as a free gift. 
So the fear of the Lord begins with this belief, this belief in God that will give you peace and satisfaction. When you go to bed at night, when you lay your head on your pillow, no matter what is going on in your life, you can know in that moment that there is a God in heaven who loves you so much that he died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven and live with him in heaven forever. And that is a source of incredible peace no matter what else is going on in your life. So to fear the Lord, it begins with belief. But belief is not enough for the fear of the Lord. It goes beyond just belief. When Solomon talks about the fear of the Lord, it begins with belief, but it also includes obedience. To believe and to obey, that's what Solomon means by fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord requires obeying the Lord. And and it works this way, because think about it. If I choose to disobey God, what am I saying to you about God? Well, I'm saying that God's not that significant to me. God's not that big. He's not that great, clearly, because he wasn't worthy of my obedience. Well, that's the opposite of what it means to fear God. Fear God means that he is big in your sight. He is significant. He is wonderful. He is huge. He is even a little bit terrifying to you. He is worthy of your obedience. To to fear God, you must obey God. Now, again, that obedience does not earn God's favor. It does not earn heaven. Those are a free gift. But Proverbs is clear. If you want to experience contentment in your life, you must obey God. Simple equation for you. Obedience grows contentment. Sin kills contentment. That's, that's how it always works. Obedience grows contentment. Sin kills contentment. Really easy to prove. I want you to think about the person who has just cheated on their spouse or embezzled money at work or taken illegal drugs. They lay down in their bed at night. They put their head on their pillow. Are they feeling at peace with themselves? No. They're feeling shame. They're feeling guilt. They're feeling regret. At a minimum, they're feeling fear and anxiety. They're not sleeping easy because they're so busy trying to think about whether or not they've covered their tracks sufficiently that they won't be caught. When you give into sin, you kill any chance of contentment in your life. I love how Hebrews puts it. In Hebrews 12, it tells us that the person who will choose to obey God, when you practice obedience in your life, the result is that God fills your life with the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love that phrase. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. If you unpack it, what the author is telling us is that righteousness or obedience produces the fruit of peace. In other words, when you choose to obey God, that that produces peace in your life, just like an apple tree produces apples. If you want apples, if you want want peace, then you must obey. As you learn to obey God, you will experience more and more peace in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that every night that you go to bed, if you are obeying God, you are going to feel peace. We live in a broken world. So there's going to be some nights when stuff is just going bad and you are kept awake by anxiety or whatever it might be. But what Solomon is promising is that if we will choose to practice obedience, we will experience on average greater peace and greater contentment in our lives than the person who chooses to disobey God. That's why Solomon tells us, Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. 
He's telling you that, that obedience is a far greater source of contentment than wealth. Choosing to obey God will go much further in your life to making you a person who is at peace and content, satisfied with life. So if you want to know contentment in your life, principle number one, learn to fear the Lord. Believe and obey the Lord. Second principle, if you want to enjoy greater contentment in your life, give thanks. Learn to give thanks. Married men in the room, I'm married as well. Uh, Let's think for a moment. How are we told to resist sexual temptation? Well, we're told don't look at other women. Don't go look at other women. Don't lust after them. Don't go look at them on the internet. Don't look at women who aren't your wives. It's good advice. But it's actually only half of the solution to sexual temptation. Here's the other half. Solomon tells us, Proverbs chapter 5, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Married men, you should, you should underline that verse in your Bible. Best verse in the Bible for married men. Read it often. Great verse. But what it's telling us is that if you want to resist sexual sin, actually counterintuitive, don't spend so much time trying not to look at other women. Spend more time and energy, what? Looking at your wife. Enjoying your wife. Finding all of the good things, all of the lovely things about her and giving thanks to God. If we will spend, married men, if we'll spend more time with our wives, looking for all the good in them, enjoying the good, giving thanks for the good in our wives, it will help us to be more content and less tempted to look at other women. Same principle applies for wealth. I'm going to just take a guess here. Most of us in this room are probably middle class. We are neither rich nor poor by American standards. Now, as middle-class people, for most of us, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can get more money because we kind of want more money. We think that life will be a little bit better if we can have a little bit more money. But I would encourage you with the words of Proverbs chapter 30. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. What is Proverbs doing? It's telling us to stop and celebrate the advantages of the middle class. It's great to be middle class. You're not so poor that you're tempted to steal, but you're also not so rich that you're tempted to trust in yourself and deny God. Got to remember, got to realize there is great danger in wealth. Great danger in wealth. And so what Solomon is teaching us to do is whatever situation we're in, we need to stop and we need to find the advantages of that situation and give thanks for it. So whatever your financial status, whatever your relational status, whatever your career status, whatever your health status, whatever your educational status, Solomon is challenging you, stop in the midst of that status and find the advantages of it. There are advantages to every stage of life. There are advantages to every situation, every circumstance. If you will just look carefully, find the advantages and give thanks for those advantages, it will help you to become a more content and satisfied person. Now, some of you are are really suffering at the moment. You're going through very, very difficult circumstances. And so you say, Blake, I just don't see it. I don't see any advantages. I don't know any way that I could possibly give thanks in this situation. I would just remind you again, 
of the words of Paul. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not a promise to go lift a lot of weight in the gym. It's a promise that you, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, you can choose contentment even now if you will learn to give thanks. There's something going on in your life where God is at work for good and you can give thanks for that. You can learn to give thanks in any and every situation. I, I challenge you to do that because I want to I warn you from the opposite. If you, if you don't give thanks in this stage of life, today, and whatever circumstances you're facing, then I would warn you with the words of Socrates. He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. If you do not learn contentment today, you will never find it. Never. Life this side of heaven is not going to get appreciably better. We will all suffer. We will all have pain and disappointments in this fallen world. So we must learn to give thanks and find contentment in these circumstances now. If you'll learn to give thanks, you can find contentment in your life. So that's the second principle. Learn to give thanks in your current circumstances. Third principle from the book of Proverbs. If you want to find contentment in life, work hard. Learn to work hard. It's important in this discussion about contentment to clearly distinguish between contentment and complacency. They're not the same thing. Contentment is not equal to complacency. Proverbs, book of Proverbs, has a lot to say about complacency, which Proverbs calls laziness. You're just lazy. You're not willing to work for good things. You're not willing to work hard for the things that you need in life. So Proverbs 20, verse 13. Do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people are poor. Poverty is incredibly complex. And many of those reasons for poverty are completely outside of a person's control. But not this one. If you're poor because you're too busy sleeping and being lazy, well, that's your fault. (laughs) You're not going to experience contentment and satisfaction in life until you get up off the couch and learn to work hard. God will never bless laziness because laziness is a sin. You're not going to enjoy contentment so long as you're not working hard. Proverbs talks about that often here, chapter 6. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So if you want to be content in life, you do not need wealth. You do not need a master's degree. You do not even need good health. But you do need hard work. If you want to know contentment, then you have to put your hands to whatever task God has given you in life, and you need to do it with all of your strength, with diligence, as unto the Lord. And then when you lay down in your bed at night and put your head on your pillow, you will enjoy the peaceful sleep that only comes to people who have learned the benefit of hard work. You must learn to work hard. If you want to enjoy contentment. That's the third principle from Proverbs. Contentment comes to those who work hard. Fourth principle. If you want to enjoy contentment in life. Then you need to give to those in need. You need to give to those in need. Now I believe that most of us are familiar with Jesus' advice. That it is better to give than to receive. You've heard that many times. Better to give than to receive. But what does Jesus mean by better? How is it better to give than to receive. Well, clearly it's better for the person who is receiving. 
from us because they wouldn't have had something, now they have something. And, and it's better for the world in general if we're all giving to those in need. But I think Jesus means more than that. I think he means that it is better for us when we give to those in need. And Proverbs talks about that often. If you will give to someone in need, your life will be appreciably better. Here's Proverbs nineteen seventeen: One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. Now we need to carefully define that word repay. It does not mean monetary repayment. God's not promising give a dollar to a poor person today and he'll give you $2 tomorrow. That's not how it works. It's not health and wealth kind of prosperity gospel here. Repay is a broad word that talks about God's blessings in your life. He is gonna fill your life with the peace and the contentment that only he can provide. He's going to bless you with contentment and satisfaction if you will choose to give to those in need. Now, how much do you have to give? That's always what people wonder. Well, there is no percentage. There is no amount that's laid out. It's just whatever it takes for you to make a real sacrifice to meet someone's real need. Whatever you need to give, if you are willing to give sacrificially to those in need, then God will bless your life. Proverbs 22, he who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. When you take what is yours, your food, so you're making a real sacrifice and you give it to someone in need, God will bless you. He will fill your life with peace and contentment and satisfaction. But on the flip side, Proverbs 21, 13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. If you choose not to give to those in need, if you're not sacrificially sharing your wealth, your possessions with others, then you cannot expect to have contentment in your life. That's why I would encourage anyone who's going through a hard period, who's not content with life, who's feeling depressed, discouraged, lonely, distant from the Lord. There are a lot of questions that you should ask yourself, but one of the questions that you should honestly ask is, am I giving sacrificially to those in need? If not, then that's a problem. That's an issue because contentment is a gift that God reserves for generous people. He gives contentment to those who are generous with their money and their possessions. And so look for opportunities to give to those in need. So those are the four principles that we discover in Proverbs about how to grow in contentment. I want to get practical, though, for a moment. I want to talk about what exactly to do with these. Okay, so all of us want to be content. There's not a human being on earth who doesn't want to feel satisfied. That's why the Rolling Stones song was so popular. We all want that. We all want satisfaction and contentment deep inside that lasts. The key to finding contentment, remember, is recognizing that contentment is not a feeling. It is not an emotional state of happiness. If that's what you're chasing, you will never find it. The key is recognizing that contentment is an attitude that you choose. You choose to see your life as a gift from God that you can be thankful for no matter what your circumstances are. But that's a hard choice. We're not naturally content. It's a hard choice, but it's a choice that you can learn to make. You can grow that contentment. You can cultivate that attitude if you will do these four things. As regular, practical, habitual parts of your life, if you will learn to fear the Lord, give thanks, work hard, and give to those in need, then you will experience more and more biblical contentment in your life. But let's talk about each of these. Four things is too many for any one person to do. So what I'm going to challenge you to do is pick one of these to work on this week. And please don't pick the one that came easily. If there's one of those four that was really easy for you to hear me talk about it, then that's not the one that God wants you to work on. He wants you to work on the one that you wish I would have left off. 
So as you look at those four, if there's one of them that you think, I wish it was just three today, why can it not be the typical three things in a sermon? Why did he have to go to four? Whichever one that you would like left off, that's the one God is telling you. You need to work on that this week. So if it's to fear the Lord, well, fear the Lord, remember there's two parts there, believe and obey. If your issue is belief, well, you just find it really hard. To believe that God exists, you find it hard to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and that eternal life is totally a gift for you. Well, I understand that. I struggle with doubts myself. I would love to talk to you about your doubts. I would love to help you to grow in faith or please talk to someone else here this morning. Let's help you grow in faith. That's where it begins for you. Or maybe it's not so much belief you struggle with, it's obedience. Maybe there's some area of your life where you're walking in sin because you just don't know how to say no to that sin. It's just too powerful. It just keeps owning you. Maybe it's a, a private sin that you've been hiding. I would encourage you, I'd remind you, sins that are kept in the dark are invincible. You'll never beat that sin. So I'm gonna encourage you, if, if the issue for you is some area of sin in your life, I'm gonna encourage you to find another believer who you can confess that sin to this week, who can begin to pray for you and help you to find victory in that area of your life. Do whatever it takes to obey the Lord. Okay, so fear of the Lord. That's some practical things that you can walk away with. Or maybe the issue for you, maybe it's number two, give thanks. You look at your life and you realize, I'm not a very grateful person. I'm always thinking about more that I want, other things that I want. I'm not giving thanks on a regular basis. Well, what I would encourage you to do is to begin a habit of listing out, of writing out things that you are thankful for. What I'm actually gonna challenge you to do is get a journal, or your computer if you want, your phone, whatever you want. And every day I want you to write five things that you're thankful for. Just five things. This is actually what I did during my sabbatical. I recognized going into my sabbatical, not doing great at gratitude at the moment. Need to work on this. So I went and bought a a journal. I usually work in my computer, but sometimes it's nice to just write things by hand. Every morning in my sabbatical, I woke up and before I actually opened the Bible or prayed, I took out my journal and I forced myself to write five things that I'm thankful for today. Some of them were really deep, like Jesus coming and dying for my sins. Some of them were really shallow, like how good strong coffee tastes in the morning. And all of that's legit because all of those are gifts from God. He wants you to thank him for the big stuff and the little stuff. He's pleased by all of it. And so just every day, you're writing out five things, five things, five things, five things. And it becomes a habit in your life. You begin to just go through your day. Look, man, Lord, I am thankful for that sunset I just saw. I am thankful for this friend in my life. I am thankful for the health I have. Why am I taking this for granted? So you just begin to give thanks. Okay, so if number two is your issue, five things every day that you're thankful for. Maybe it's number three. You wish I hadn't talked about laziness this morning. Sorry, I uh, had to go there. If laziness is an issue for you, you're struggling with laziness, then I'm gonna challenge you to do whatever it takes to fight that sin. You're probably gonna need to have a schedule in your life, a schedule that gives you time when you're working on your studies or, or working on your work, when you're getting to the gym and exercising, when you're getting good sleep, whatever it is. You need to, to make a schedule, you need to keep it, and then here's the hard part. You're gonna need to remove from your life the things that are distracting you. If you are really struggling with laziness, well, where are you going when you are not working? Is it Facebook? Nice thing about Facebook, you can shut it down. You can desubscribe. No one on this planet needs Facebook. So just hop off there. Is it Xbox? Nice thing about Xbox. They sell for a lot of money on Craigslist. So you just put it up, you sell it, you get rid of it, it's gone. Cable TV, nice thing about that, you cut cable TV, you got a lot of money in your pocket. So whatever it is that is distracting you and making you tempted to be lazy, 
and just get rid of it. Maybe just for a time. Maybe you can get it back later when you've developed good work habits. But you've got to fight laziness or you're never going to know contentment. Okay, or maybe the issue for you is number four. You look at your life and you really have not been giving. And I'm going to challenge you to, to give sacrificially. Now, some of you are going to say, I'm not giving to people in need because I'm one of them. I don't have a lot of money. My encouragement to you is just to remind you again, it's not about an amount or a percent. It's about giving whatever you have to give to make a sacrifice. And for some of you, that's five bucks a month. That's really all you can give at this time. And God is going to be pleased by that because he doesn't need your money. It's not about you meeting some financial goal for God. It's just about you being willing to habitually participate in giving to those in need. So whatever your financial situation is right now, I want you to, to think, am I giving sacrificially to those in need? Am I giving to the church? Am I giving to missions? Am I giving to community organizations? Am I giving to the poor? Now, if you look around and you say, I don't know where to give my money. I don't know anyone who's poor. I don't know anyone who's needy. I don't know of any good charitable organizations. We can help you with that. We know a lot of people in need. So you can call the church, email me or someone else, and we can connect you with some great charitable organizations or some some people who really are in need. Or you can go to our website if you prefer. And if you look under serve, there's a link to, to like partner organizations, community partnerships, and you'll see all of these awesome charities here in, in Bryan College Station that you can give to. So you need to have giving, charitable giving as a normal part of your life, even if it's just five bucks a month. I'm confident that for every one of us in this room, something on that list has convicted us. Something that we need to work on. The good thing is that as we work on these very practical principles from Proverbs, we will find that contentment becomes easier and easier in our lives. Not a feeling of happiness, but a choice to see your life as a gift from God that you can be grateful for. So let's give thanks to our Father for this life he's given us. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for giving us life and breath today. We acknowledge, God, that every day on this planet is a gift from you. We acknowledge that we take most of your gifts for granted and we confess that, Lord. We're sorry that we so easily take your gifts for granted and focus all of our attention on the things that you have not given us. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our discontentment, for our greed, for our covetousness, for our jealousy. I pray that you would cleanse us of those sins and that you would help us to see all the good that you have done for us. I pray, Lord, for all of us in this room that we would believe with more strength, with more clarity that not only that you exist, but that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are always faithful. I pray that you would grow our faith. I pray that you would grow our obedience, God, that we would see you as so good and so great and so worthy that we would want to obey you. I pray, Father, that you would help all of us to grow to be hardworking, generous people who give thanks for all the good things in our lives. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. You've made contentment possible for us. We thank you for the truth of your word that delivers us from slavery to emotions like happiness. That we know that contentment is possible through Jesus Christ. Help us to make that choice each day to receive life as a gift from you. Even with the painful circumstances that we face, I pray that we would believe that life is a gift. Thank you for your gifts, Father. You are so good to us. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.